Today's episode of the Serial Dynasty is sponsored by Sean T. Fitness. Sean T. at SeanTFitness.com is the one-stop shop for motivation. His website has exercise videos, podcasts, free music, apparel, and more, all to keep you as motivated as possible so you can make fitness a lifestyle. What I love about Sean is his view on life in general. It's not just about defining your abs and your arms. It's about defining your life and trusting and believing in who you are. Sean has been in the fitness profession for 18 years, and he's discovered that if we put the focus only on looking good, we can set ourselves up for disappointment. We have to combine the look with feeling good about ourselves. If you feel good, you can take that energy into helping you look good for you. Go to SeanTFitness.com and see what it's all about. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Serial Dynasty. I want to thank you all for tuning in today, and really quickly, I want to say thank you to all of you who continue to donate to the GoFundMe campaign, gofundme.com slash truthandjustice. We're well past the halfway point to our goal. We crossed $8,000 this week. The new studio building has been ordered and paid for, and we have a delivery date of the first week of November. If we can reach our goal between now and then, when the studio is delivered, we'll have all the electrical and internet run out and all the equipment we need to finish with the soundproofing and insulating of the studio as we spring forward into the new Truth and Justice podcast. Thank you all again so much for all of your help. And I want to take just this quick second to say to all of you that I love you all and I thank you so much for all of the emails. As our audience has grown and grown and grown and grown, the volume of emails that I'm receiving is just going through the roof right now. This week, I've gotten a lot of emails that were just encouragements from listeners just telling me that they appreciated the show and appreciate what we're doing. And I, I always try to take a minute and send a quick message back on those, but I've just been so swamped this week. I've had so many of those emails. If you've sent me one of those emails or any email for that matter and haven't heard back from me, I just want to tell you here, thank you so much. I appreciate everything that all of you are doing. Not just the words of encouragement, but the ideas and the theories and the help with research. All of that is just making such a huge difference in contributing to this show. So to all of you listeners, thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your support and your dedication to the pursuit of truth and justice. Also, I have an announcement for you finally. Yesterday, I was able to confirm a date and time to record an interview with Jim Traynham. So the interview with Jim Traynham will be featured on next week's episode of The Serial Dynasty. And regarding the interview, if any of you have any specific questions that you'd like me to ask Jim, please send them along. I already have a list, so I can't guarantee I'll get them in there, but I would love to hear what you have to say and the questions that you have for me to ask Jim. I will let you know that Jim has not continued to follow this case. He's starting to research a little bit, but Jim works on all sorts of cases all the time, doing all kinds of consulting work and teaching. So just keep that in mind when you're sending along any questions. As for today's episode, as I mentioned last week, the plan for today is to explore the police behavior during the investigation of the Heyman Lee murder. So let's get right to that. Over the past nearly a year now, we've all been listening to Serial Undisclosed, Serial Dynasty about the facts of this case. During that time, we've heard many quotes from police interview notes, trial transcripts, etc. 
But as I was reading through the transcripts of a particular interview last week, something occurred to me. Most of the information that we have regarding the police tactics in this investigation come from police notes. And when I was reading this particular transcript, it occurred to me that things don't seem to line up quite exactly the way I thought they should based on trial transcripts. And I couldn't figure out what was so different about this particular witness's statement. And the difference is, I was reading an actual transcript of the interview, meaning it was a dictation word for word of the actual interview, not just notes written by the police about the interview. I'm sure most of you are already aware of this, but just to make sure that we're crystal clear, the difference between interview notes and a transcript are exactly what I just said. The notes that we have for all of these interviews are simply the detective's thoughts or perspective on the actual interview. For example, I could be interviewing with the police and say that something occurred in the evening and the police officer could write in the notes occurred around 4 or 5 p.m. We just don't know. Those are the detective's notes, which does not necessarily indicate what the person being interviewed actually said. So my quest this week was to review the transcripts from the March 26, 1999 interview of Debbie. This interview was taped and transcribed and was conducted by Detectives Ritz and McGillivary. This is a 47-page account of the actual word-for-word conversation between the detectives and Debbie. And what made me really interested in the interview transcripts of an actual Woodlawn High School student was something that Laura said last week on this show. She mentioned that the police officers came to Woodlawn High School in the days following the arrest of Adnan. I spoke with Laura a little bit about this earlier this week. And she says that they told them that their presence was to reassure the students that they had indeed arrested the correct person. Laura said that the police officers at points got rude with the students, telling them that they are not to be questioning them doing their job, that they know that they have the right person. They confirmed to all the students who were asking that they had mountains of evidence proving that Adnan committed this crime. They told them that they had Adnan's fingerprints all over the crime scene, that they had DNA evidence, and they were 100% convinced that Adnan was the culprit. At first, I just chalked this up to ego. The cops didn't like being questioned by these students. How dare they question their ability to do their job? But the more I thought about it, and then after reading these transcripts, the thought occurred to me that what these detectives were doing was planting seeds. My theory is that they already knew that they had a very weak case. Remember, they had already interrogated Adnan for six hours at this point and got nothing out of him. They knew that they had no physical evidence. In my opinion, they had real concerns that Jay's testimony wouldn't hold up because they knew that they were the ones that created it. So they went to the high school and they started planting these seeds. Start convincing the students that they have the right guy. They implanted confirmation bias or verification bias into these students. And they didn't question them right then. They let this information marinate for nearly a month before they called Debbie in to question her. In a few weeks' time, it's easy for anyone, especially a young, impressionable teenager, to allow their mind to turn something someone told them into a reality. You hear the same thing repeated enough times over and over again, and at some point you just begin to believe it. So in my opinion, Detectives Ritz and McGillivary planted their seed, and then on March 26, they attempted to harvest it from Debbie. As I mentioned, this transcript is 47 pages long, 
and I'm not going to read you a 47-page transcript. But there are a few sections from the transcript that I want you to hear. I want you to hear the methodology behind the interrogation techniques of Ritz and McGillivary. First stop, motive. On page 11 of the transcript, McGillivary is questioning Debbie about the timeline as to when Hay and Adnan had broken up. Then McGillivary comes in with this. Correct me if I'm wrong, the last time we spoke you indicated that um they were supposed to go Christmas shopping and Adnan was upset that she would ask Adnan to go Christmas shopping, him being a Muslim. You recall that? Debbie's response, no. Now this is just a brief interjection into a conversation that really didn't relate to Christmas or him being a Muslim or anything like this. But what struck me about it is that McGillivary is trying to lead Debbie into confirming that Adnan was so devoted to his religion that he wouldn't even exchange a Christmas present or go Christmas shopping. It's clear to me that McGillivary knew that this is not something that Debbie had already said. He's careful to start his sentence with, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also clear that Debbie never said this. There's no hesitation, there's no ums. Her immediate response is no. McGillivary follows up with, no, okay. Do you know whether or not Er, Adnan, and Hay exchanged Christmas gifts? Yes, they did exchange Christmas gifts. When reading those few lines, you can see the methodology behind what McGillivary is doing. Obviously, this is not something that Debbie misremembered. She wouldn't misremember that Adnan was upset because Hay wanted him to go Christmas shopping and he's a Muslim and he wouldn't do that sort of thing because her next response is, yes, they exchanged Christmas gifts. So she absolutely knew that Adnan did go Christmas shopping and did exchange Christmas gifts. So there's no way that Debbie had told McGillivary previously that Adnan's religion would have stopped him from doing this. This was a deceptive tactic on McGillivary's part, trying to implant a memory that was never there. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the last time we spoke, you told me this. An event that never occurred. The next stop is Adnan's alibi. You saw in that last segment how quickly McGillivary moved away from the Muslim angle. When Debbie answered with a sharp no, and then followed it up with a contradictory statement to his statement, he quickly moves on. But listen to this next exchange. I'm going to read you the back and forth that starts on page 25 of the transcript and ends on page 28. McGillivary asked, what do you do after afternoon announcements on the 13th? Debbie responds, uh, generally I would wait until the halls cleared out, because walking out there, um, and then that day, I think I went to the guidance counselor. I had, um, get a recommendation, something like that, scholarship information, um, so I went and got that, um, I'm positive, just about then, I saw Adnan that day. Now let me pause for just a minute here. I want you to remember what she says here on page 25. I'll repeat it. I'm positive. Just about then, I saw Adnan that day. She's positive. So let me go back to the beginning of that sentence. I'm positive. Just about then, I saw Adnan that day and um, before he went to track practice. Um, I spoke to him and a couple other kids. And then that was very short, though. It wasn't a long period of time that we did that. And then probably about 2.45, um, we left at... Um, now, this was McGillivary's question, but Ritz cuts her off here. He says, if I can get you to stop here for just a second, um, Deborah, you said you spoke with Adnan? Uh-huh. You think you did? You think you did. And some other students. Were the other students part of the group that when you were talking with Adnan? Um, not exactly, no. Was he with anyone else? Do you recall your conversation that you had with him? She says, very brief about school and him going to practice. That's all I remember. Ritz follows up. 
And where exactly were both of you? Um, inside the guidance area. Um, we walked in the steps. It's a short area beside the office and then the main secretary desk. We were in that area. Do you have any idea where he was coming from or what his purpose for being in that area was? No, um, he did have his um, track stuff with him, his gym bag, and that I think, um, but I don't know where he came from. Ritz says, you said he had his gym bag with him. Can you describe that for me? Um, I think it's a Wilson or Adidas. I think he interchanges bags. Um, and it's black, large, handles. That's all I remember. Now McGillivary comes back in. In the guidance counselor's office, um, is there a policy that you need to sign in there prior to going in to see a counselor? Debbie says, no, um, if you go during the day, then you have to set up an appointment. But after school, it's a free-for-all. McGillivary says, okay, and you saw Adnan in the guidance counselor's office that day. What would you have been doing in there? Again here, Debbie confirms. Uh-huh. Um, either one of the counselors for information, um, he cuts her off. Is there any other reason why somebody would be in the counselor's office? Not really, just cuts her off again. So when you went into the counselor's office that day, did you have an appointment with the counselor? She says, no. Did you talk to a counselor? She says, uh-huh. And that counselor would actually remember you being there because you're there for a specific reason, correct? Yes. So if Adnan was in there, he would either have an appointment or he would be actually seeing a counselor concerning a specific... Debbie says, yeah, yes. McGillivary again, college. It would be the same counselor, would it not? Debbie says, um... McGillivary says, seniors have their counselor. Debbie says, no, it goes by alphabet. Um, but we did have the same counselor to manage the entire as certain counselor. Let me pause there for just a second to point something out. As a trained interrogator, it's obvious to me exactly what these detectives are doing. There's a little bit of a good cop, bad cop routine going on here. And what's happening is Debbie didn't give them the answer they wanted. In fact, her statement provided an alibi for their suspect, and a pretty solid alibi for their suspect. Now, this is her recollection of that day. And if you remember all the way back in episode two of this show, I talked about how easy it is, especially with a young person, to manipulate their memory. What they're trying to do here is make her uncomfortable. They're hammering her with questions. They're acting skeptical. They're cutting her off when she's talking. They're making her nervous. And they're trying to implant some ideas in her head that can get her off of this testimony. They can get her to change her response. And one of the best methods for doing that, especially with a young person, is to make them uncomfortable enough that subconsciously they will say what you want them to say. They pick up on your cues, they read between the lines, and they say what you want them to say so that you'll stop harassing them. They want to give you what you want. So in my opinion, that's what's going on here. So let me continue. Remember she had said previously there was a certain counselor everyone had. McGillivary now asks, who is that? Debbie says, Miss Ducky. But she's, and this is inaudible, sometimes you wouldn't be able to go to her. Some of the other counselors were designated for some areas like transcripts. Uh, Mrs. Gregg was in charge of that. You know who you are, inaudible. And um, the secretary, if you want to set up an appointment, sometimes people would just need notes. They wouldn't necessarily talk to a counselor, um, but leave a note in her mailbox or fill out a slip for an appointment for the next day. Okay, now you can read from that statement. At this point, Debbie is starting to get a little flustered. She's getting uncomfortable. 
in that one statement, there's two uh, in the transcripts where it says inaudible, where she's mumbling and you can't hear her. It's um every other word. You've seen those increase over the last two pages. So now McGillivary pounces back in. Now he's asked her about who the counselor was. She went through this whole thing, talked about all the different counselors. The most logical follow-up question to that, if I was interviewing, would be, which counselor did you speak to that day? So that I could go talk to that counselor and confirm this. But McGillivary's follow-up goes a very different direction. He can see that she's on her ropes, she's rambling, she's nervous, and he follows up with, Okay, you're positive you saw? Warren responds, If, and then it says inaudible, The 13th I'm talking about, yes. McGillivary, Okay, and why do you remember that? Um, I don't know. Um, McGillivary, Could you be mistaken? Debbie, Possibly. McGillivary, Okay. Then right then, Ritz cuts in. The tape is going to run out in a minute or so. You want to check it? McGillivary, okay, um, we're going to actually stop the tape here and turn it over. And then they stop the tape. I found this tape stop to be a little odd, or actually very obvious, what they were doing. At the point here when they stop the tape, they are almost exactly 35 minutes into the interview. So since they're saying there's one minute left on the tape, that would mean this would be about a 70-minute tape, if you remember back in the 90s when we used cassette tapes. Now, I don't know exactly what type of tape the detectives were using for this interview, but as I recall, there were two options for audio cassette tapes. You could buy a 60-minute tape or a 90-minute tape. So at 35 minutes, that would mean that this was a 75-minute tape, because he said there was one minute left on the side. I did some research and didn't find any evidence that there was ever such a thing as a 70 or 75 minute cassette tape. It wasn't a 60 minute tape because they'd gone beyond 30 minutes. So my assumption is that this was a 90 minute tape, which would mean there was at least 10 minutes of recording space left on that side of the tape when Ritz interjects and says it's time to flip it over. So why stop it right then? Well, it could be for a couple of reasons or both. The most obvious reason to me was the point of the conversation they had reached at this point. They had managed to shift Debbie's statement all the way from her statement at the beginning that she was positive that she saw Adnan in the guidance counselor's office at 2.45, all the way till four pages of this transcript later where they get this final question, could you be mistaken? She says, possibly. Stop the tape. By stopping the tape, this gave the detectives a few minutes to talk to Debbie off record without being recorded. They knew they had her on the ropes at this point, They had moved her from being positive to being possibly mistaken. So they shut the tape off, and 11 minutes later, they turn it back on. As soon as they turn it back on, Detective McGillivray follows up with this. Um, We were talking about the guidance counselor's office and what actually everyone does there, and you indicated you were in the guidance counselor's office that day, and you recall seeing a non, but you can't be 100% sure. Debbie responds, says inaudible, so mumbling. I remember the event taking place, but I'm not exactly sure. That could have been the day before or the day after, because that happened more than one time. And then, boom, they move on to the next topic, where McGillivray asks if Debbie knows what a non-fourth period class was. So if you're attending the school of how to be a crooked, manipulative detective, that is a great lesson. For the rest of us who strive to learn proper interrogation techniques, this was a lesson in what not to do if you want to get the truth out of your witness. The next section I want to read is a brief example of another occurrence of McGillivary moving Debbie off of a positive statement to being not so sure. McGillivary asks, 
he would have to get change into his track attire. Would he generally do that at school? Naturally, it would be in the men's locker room. However, would he change at school? Right, right, uh uh-huh, at school. McGillivary, he wouldn't leave? Debbie, no. McGillivary, change at home and come back? Debbie, no, he did not do that. McGillivary, that you're aware of. Debbie, uh uh-huh. Now, this is a mild example, but I just want to point out that this is throughout this interview. If you go online and read these transcripts, the entire interview is like this. She says something they don't like. They move her into a position of saying she's not sure. In this case, she answered twice. Did he go home to change? No. Are you sure? No, he did not do that. That you're aware of? Uh Uh-huh. And this is more of what I was discussing earlier how the tendency of people being interviewed by the police is to figure out what it takes to please them and give them what they're looking for. It's similar to Pavlov's dog. Throughout this interview, the detectives are training Debbie. If you just say you agree with us, or you just say you're not sure, we'll move on and we'll stop harassing you. And as the interview goes on, she does it more and more and more. She makes a statement, they bring her off the statement to a point where she's unclear, and then they move on. As you continue on through the transcripts, you see a number of things that Debbie brings up that the detectives don't want to talk about. She mentions Takira, she mentions Don, the detectives quickly move away from that. Here's a conversation from page 32 of the transcript. McGillivary asks, did she indicate that she was going to give anybody a ride? Debbie says, no, um, somebody, I think Takira had asked, and like she said she couldn't because she had to pick up her cousin after school and she had to meet them about 3 o'clock, so she didn't have time. But no one else that I remember. Now, if McGillivary is actually trying to figure out what happened, figure out where Hay went, figure out who might have been with her, he would be asking more questions about Takira. He would be wanting to know who she is, can he speak to her. Those would be his follow-ups. He just got a statement from someone who said the last person to ask her for a ride was Takira, and this is how McGillivary responds. Basically, he ignores the Takira statement. He says, did you actually see her drive off from the lot? Debbie says, no, I never actually saw her leave the lot. McGillivary, would she give people rides home? Debbie, um, in general, no, inaudible. She might on occasion, but not generally. Again, he's got her on the fence. She's coming with the ums and the mumbling. Boom, right back to Adnan. McGillivary's follow-up, have you ever seen Adnan in the car with Hay? He completely ignores her statement about Takira, starts to push her and question her about whether or not she even saw Hay leave the lot. She gets uncomfortable, and then bam, right back to Adnan, effectively implanting more confirmation bias into Debbie. Now we're moved on to page 41 of the transcript. This is where Debbie brings up Don again, and they're asking about the email that she sent that you all have heard about in the phone conversation. McGillivary asks, and how long of a conversation was that? Debbie, seven hours. McGillivary, seven hours? Debbie, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. McGillivary, and at this point, did you realize that Hay was not with Donnie? Yes, I did. And that's what the primary, primary the discussion was about? Debbie, right, right. In the beginning, that's what we talked about. And then, I don't know, I guess after that I felt I knew him. He was so concerned, he was really upset. Um, um, he mentioned that he figured Adnan had something to do with her disappearance. But at that point, I just thought he had nothing to do with it. And once again, immediately, okay, any other conversations with Anon about your concern? I mean, there were rumors going around school. As you can see again, no concern with anybody but Anon. 
She's talking about Don. She's talking about the phone conversation with him. And then, bam, immediately right back to Adnan. Now, obviously, he's investigating Adnan. He's already arrested Adnan. At this point, Adnan had been locked up for three weeks. But McGillivary makes no attempt to get any further information about a seven-hour conversation with Don. As soon as the conversation turned to Don said he thinks Adnan's involved, we're right back to Adnan. And again, Don's off the hook. Now next I want to present some evidence that my theory about the police planting seeds and creating confirmation bias amongst all of these witnesses is evident on page 43 of the transcript. Debbie says, right, and everyone else was accrediting that to his denial, that he was now in shock. So I really thought that he was in shock, you know, because he don't speak to anyone. It wasn't just me. Um, It was like he wasn't there with everyone else. McGillivary says, um, and you thought that then? Debbie, uh-huh. McGillivary, do you still think that now? Debbie, that's that's why... Not exactly. McGillivary, and why is that? And this is the point to really tune in. Here's Debbie's response. Um, Because he was arrested for, you know... And if someone isn't, um, that I assume there has to be something, I guess, I think that he's involved in it somehow because he was arrested and he wasn't arrested for no reason. Um, I know that other people's fingerprints inaudible, they weren't arrested. So I don't know. McGillivary says, but there isn't any specific Debbie interjects. No, no, not really. McGillivary finishes this sentence. Reason other than the fact that the police have arrested him? Debbie, right. So right there in that interview, you can get a really good idea of where any witness is coming from, especially witnesses regarding all this circumstantial evidence, how Adnan was acting, what he was saying, what he was doing, if it seemed weird or if it seemed fake. All of these students were operating off of the confirmation bias that was implanted by these police officers just like Debbie had said to the cops. She thought that Adnan was really upset, just like everyone else, that he was in shock. And she says she doesn't necessarily still think that anymore because the police arrested him, so they must have had a reason to arrest him, so he must be involved. The presumption of guilt towards Adnan is stemmed from the police officers arresting Adnan and telling them that they had the right person. Now, there's one more interesting thing that I found in this interview with Debbie. It was back towards the beginning of the interview. On page 6 of the transcript, McGillivary is asking Debbie if she knows of the places where Adnan and Hay have had sex. McGillivary asks, Um, were you aware of any specific times that they had told you and locations where they had, uh, intercourse? Debbie, um, they had, um, an afternoon in the park. I don't remember which park it was. I don't know who told me or not, but they did, um, out in parking lots, in his car, um, at one of our friend's houses at a party, or I don't think they ever did it at his house or her house, either one, but in other places. Now, think for a minute about that response. Debbie just gave them exactly what they were looking for. She mentioned a park, and she said they did it in his car in parking lots. Now, remember when this interview is taking place. This is March 26th. Anon has already been arrested. Jay has already been interviewed multiple times. They're just a couple of weeks away from Anon's indictment. They've already set their narrative that Hay was murdered in the Best Buy parking lot and her body dumped in Leakin Park. 
So I want you to ask yourself for a minute, what would be the most obvious follow-up question? Mine would be, do you know which parking lots they used to have sex in? But let me read you McGillivary's follow-up question. So again, Debbie says that they've done it in parks, parking lots, in the car. In McGillivary's follow-up. Okay, any hotels? Debbie. No, they never went to a hotel. McGillivary. That you're aware of. Debbie. No, as far as I know. So again, as we discussed earlier, they get her from a solid no and try to get her off of that. But she still follows up with no. As far as she knows, they've never done it in a hotel. McGillivary moves on. He starts to ask about some other things. And then on page 8, Ritz interjects. He asks Debbie, You said that they would go to parking lots or once at a friend's house. Any other locations that Detective McGillivary asked you about? Did Hay ever tell you about any hotels or motels? Debbie responds, No. She never told me about any hotels or motels. Ritz, how about Adnan? Debbie, No. I've read this interview several times. And last week when I was reading it, this series of questions jumped out at me. Why in the hell are both Ritz and McGillivary asking Debbie specifically about a hotel? It makes zero sense. As you can see from the rest of the interview, when they don't get the answer that they want, they press her and try to change her answer to get the answer that they want. And they hone in on anything that is consistent with their narrative of how Adnan killed Hay. Yet in this one instance, and it's the only time throughout this entire 47-page interview where they seem to be honing in on something that has nothing to do with their narrative. Debbie gave them the answer that they wanted, and instead of continuing and following up with which parking lot it was in, which park they might have went to, they immediately jump in with a hotel. Why would they say anything about a hotel if she didn't mention a hotel, and a hotel has nothing to do with their narrative, and has never been any part of any of Jay's testimony, why would they be asking about a hotel? So I thought it was odd the first time when McGillivary said it. But when three pages later, Ritz interjects to ask her again about a hotel, that's what really got my attention. According to the state's case, and according to Jay's testimony, they don't want Debbie to say anything about a hotel. Her saying anything about a hotel is going to do nothing but mess up their case. But they ask her not once, but twice. When Ritz interjects again, what about a hotel? Did they tell you anything about a hotel? She says, no, he continues to follow up. Hey, didn't tell you? No. What about Adnan? Did he tell you about a hotel? No. Why are these detectives wondering about a hotel? Why are these detectives so interested in whether or not Hay and Adnan had sex in a hotel when their theory of the case is that she was murdered in a Best Buy parking lot? My theory, they learned something about a hotel. There was a tip, there was a call, there was a rumor, something that put Hay at a hotel on the afternoon of January 13th, 1999, and it didn't fit their narrative, and they needed to put a non at that hotel. And when Debbie didn't give them what they were looking for, they round-filed it, just like all the other evidence that didn't fit their case, and they proceeded on with their narrative. For this week's listener email segment, I only have one email for you, and that's because it's going to take a little bit of time to answer it. This email comes from Alice. The subject line, new lividity slash Christy info. Alice writes, hi Bob, I love your podcast. 
Gotta say that first. I try and follow what's going on with this case with your podcast and Undisclosed. Sometimes I go on Reddit, even though I know it's a bad idea. Anyway, today there are loads of threads claiming they've, quote, got Adnan now, and also some horrible things about the makers of Undisclosed. Yuck. With alleged new burial scene photos which match Jay's testimony in the lividity patterns. They're also saying that Christy remembered the 13th as Stephanie's birthday and therefore her testimony is accurate. I know far, far better than to trust someone on Reddit who's claimed to see photos but won't give them out. But I still find the two questions troubling. Do you know anything about them? Thanks, Alice. Thank you, Alice, for that email. And yes, I've been made aware of those Reddit posts this week. Um, that's actually why I'm recording, and I guess you guys don't know that, but I'm recording on Friday rather than my usual Thursday night because as these things were coming out, I've had to adjust the agenda for the show this week to address them. For those of you that don't do Reddit, and I'm in that camp unless my listeners draw me there to look at something specific, there's been a lot of activity there this week. The people who are affectionately known as guilters are claiming that they've dropped three bombshells this week that not only prove Anon to be guilty, but also prove Rabia, Susan, and Colin to be liars. As I continue to approach this show and this investigation through unbiased eyes, there were enough listeners who directed me to these posts that I took the time to go through them and read them. And I'll address them here one at a time. First, I'll address the Christie situation. Christie, or as you might remember her, not her real name, Kathy, who claims that Jay and Anon came to her house on the night of the 13th, that Anon was acting weird and not speaking, saying something about wanting to know how to get rid of a high, he got a phone call, acted weird, and they left. You'll also remember that several months ago, the Undisclosed team discovered that it's very possible that Christy has the wrong day. One of the reasons for this was because she told the police specifically that the day that Jay and Anon came over was a day where she was at a conference for her school program. Christy attended UMBC, and she says at the beginning of her interview that the reason she remembers that was the day was because she was at a conference for her internship from 9 to 4.30 p.m. The Undisclosed team, through some listeners, were able to find conference schedules for UMBC from back in 1999 and determined that there were no conferences relevant to her major on January 13, 1999. But there was, however, a conference on January 22nd, 1999. So the undisclosed team theorized. So the undisclosed team, based on that and several other factors, and I have to go back and listen to Undisclosed Episode 1 to hear all the reasons why. I'm not going to recap all of them. They theorized that the day that Christie was thinking about was actually January 22nd, 1999. So here's the huge bombshell. During the interview, McGillivary asked Christie, Okay, and was there any conversation? And Christy responds, Um, a little bit, like it's Stephanie's birthday and she's Jay's girlfriend and um, it's small talk. It's not, I mean, we basically watch TV. Okay, so as I'm sure all of you are aware, January 13th is Stephanie's birthday. So the claim that's being made on Reddit was that Christy did indicate that January 13th was the day they were there because she remembered it was Stephanie's birthday. In the dark sub of Dubras had been high-fiving each other all week because they finally got the undisclosed team. They called them liars and cheaters and all sorts of things that I won't even repeat on this podcast because they didn't disclose the full version of this transcript for people to see that she said that. So what's my take on it? Let me preface that by saying that I've never really talked much about the Christie trip because I think it's completely irrelevant. Whether Jay and Anon were at Christie's that night or not doesn't matter at all to this case. 
So let me start this conversation by saying, even if Christie's right and they were there that day, I don't see any way how that makes Adnan any less guilty or any less innocent than he already was, depending on your point of view, because he happened to be at someone's house. Now, the claim is that Christie noticed that he was being noticeably strange, and she does say that. And if you read the transcripts of that interview, there's a lot of things that were strange about that interview. So going back to the beginning of the interview, McGillivray is asking about what she was doing on the 13th. He says, UMBC on the 13th, can you tell me what you did? Christie says, well, I was in a conference at the University of Maryland in Baltimore for my internship. Um, I was there to like 9 to 4.30, somewhere around there. So one thing you'll notice if you read these transcripts is that Christie says that she never met Adnan. She wasn't introduced to Adnan, and Adnan never spoke other than asking how to get rid of a high. So here's McGillivray. Okay, if Jay didn't introduce him, how do you know his name? Christie, I don't know how I know his name. McGillivary, is it Christy, um, McGillivary through Christy, um, um, McGillivary J or, now I'm putting those pauses in there because in the transcript it actually has the dot 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 after these sentences. So you remember undisclosed tap 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 episode? This reads to me as though McGillivary is doing something similar here where he's leading her. She says, I don't know where I heard the name. He's like, was it? Through Jay. And then Christy says, maybe Jay said it in the midst of conversation. Maybe, or, you know, I don't even think it was until I was on the phone with Jen that I, was I like someone's at my house? Something like that. I mean, not real sure where I know his name. McGillivray, okay, that's fine. She jumps in again. Funny, I don't remember. So then later in the conversation, McGillivray asks, you indicated that you felt something was wrong. Why did you feel that way? Christy says, it's just, just my intuition. Um, but every time I hung out with Jay and Jen, they've been just like, they like conversational. Um, you know, not acting real funny, like, you know, just normal. And that's when McGillivray says, okay, was there any conversation? And she says, um, a little bit, like it's Stephanie's birthday and she's Jay's girlfriend and, um, it's small talk. It's not, I mean, we basically watch TV. She goes on to say that Adnan was slumped over, really quiet, acting weird. The only thing he said was, how do you get rid of a high? And then she describes Adnan answering the phone when the phone call came in. Now remember, Jay's testimony is that the call that they got was from Hay's brother. He says he got a call while at Christie's from Hay's brother asking where Hay is. It's the only call that he describes while he's there. Christie recounts this. Um, like the part I remember is like, what if they come to talk to me? What should I say? Um, what should I do? Like, do I, I mean, there was like a conversation after that. I just don't remember what it was. I wasn't really paying attention at that point. McGillivray asked her if Anon was high. She says that she assumed so because he asked about how to get rid of a high. And she says, I'm not clear whether I remember him saying, I have to go talk to someone. I have to go meet someone. I have to go do something. I'm not sure. Like he, I remember him expressing that was really important what he had to go do. He didn't specify what. So as as I'm reading this, I'm trying to look through it through objective eyes. Is it possible Christy has the right day? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, she does say it was Stephanie's birthday, but she also says she was at a conference that doesn't appear to have happened on that day. So I guess you have to take which parts of the testimony you want to believe. So then I start to think, what if it was that day? What does that mean? Well, again, it's a matter of perspective. If you look at this through the lens of Adnan just killed his girlfriend, and he gets really high, and he goes to this person's house, 
and he's sitting there acting weird. Says he wants to get rid of his high. He has to go do something important, and he wants to get rid of the high to do whatever this important thing was. Was that important thing that he had to go bury a body, and he wanted to be sober when he buried the body? I suppose that's a possibility. But what would make more sense to me is, I have to go see my father at the mosque, and I'm high. It's really important. I need to get rid of this high. How do I get rid of this? I have to go to the mosque. To me, that seems to be the more logical explanation, but you can consider it either way. So then there's this phone call. Christy says he's asking, what am I supposed to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to say? And he's freaking out, and he's leaving, and he's saying all this to the person on the other end of the phone. Christy doesn't know who's on the other end of the phone. Jay's testimony is that that person who called was actually Hay's brother. So if Christy has the right day, that's a really, really strange response to your ex-girlfriend's brother calling you, asking where your ex-girlfriend is, that you would say to her brother, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? What if they come talk to me? Seems like an odd response to her brother. So maybe Christy's right and Jay's wrong. Who knows? So then you remember Christy talks about Anon and Jay during the conversation getting up and rushing out. And she thought it was so weird that they were sitting out in their car just not doing anything. And it was a really long time. And it was just weird they were sitting there, right? So this is the actual transcript after Christy says that they left and went outside. McGillivary asks, several minutes go by and then they haven't come back? Christy says, they haven't come back. McGillivary says, you go to the window? Christy, right. And you look out? Right. And your apartment is where? Second floor? Yeah, second floor. And the window you're looking out of faces the street? Down below, right. And you saw them where? Christy says, sitting in a car with the lights look, uh, the lights off. Have you seen this car before? I don't even remember what it looks like. Um, I just remember it being really dark outside and headlights were on, um, McGillivary. Could you see them in the car? Christy. No, I guess it was an assumption. McGillivary, okay, so you were assuming that when you looked out the window that it's Jay and Adnan who were in the car. Right. So one interesting thing out of these transcripts being posted was that this whole time we've heard this story from Christy about how weird it was and her watching out the window of them sitting in this car for a long time before they drove off. When you read the actual transcripts, she said it was about a minute. She has no idea if it was actually them. It was dark outside. She just assumed that the car that was parked outside of her house was Adnan's and that Jay and Adnan were in it when in fact she couldn't see the car, and she had no idea what Anand drove, or even if they drove there. Not that it's necessarily here nor there, just adds to the weirdness of this whole Christie situation. So what does all this mean? Is this the big bombshell? That Susan and Colin and Rabia are horrible liars and deceitful because they theorize that maybe January 13th wasn't the day that Christie was recalling and supported that with evidence? Well, like I said... I believe the entire Christie trip is a red herring anyway. It was at a time when Adnan says that he would have been with Jay right after track practice, when Jay would have picked him up, that they smoked some weed, they got some food before they went to the mosque. This is all Adnan's testimony. So Christie's testimony actually corroborates Adnan's testimony if she has the right day. If she doesn't have the right day, then it really doesn't matter. The incriminating part was that he was acting so weird and his phone conversation was so strange. But you could theorize that acting weird and asking about getting rid of a high could be attributed to the fact that he just murdered somebody and he wanted to be sober when he buried the body. Personally, my theory is that the reason that he was concerned was because he was high, and if it was that day, he had to go to the mosque. He didn't want to go to the mosque high, and he couldn't shake the high. I certainly don't think that it was Hayes' brother on the phone, as Jay testifies. 
If it was January 13th, then that could have been the call from Aisha telling him that the police had called her and that they were looking for Adnan to ask him where Hay's at. Now remember, all of the students, not just Adnan, didn't think anything about Hay being missing. They just thought she was going to be in trouble, that she ran off with her boyfriend or whatever. We've heard testimony from Laura and Krista, the journal records from Becky and Debbie. No one was really concerned. So if this was the correct day and that call was Aisha calling, letting him know the police were about to call, I think it makes perfect sense that Adnan, who's sitting there so high he can barely sit up, just finds out the police are about to call him, that he'd be freaking out about that. So again, not much of a bombshell here. But the other piece of this is that if this testimony is accurate, and that really was January 13th, then it just further destroys Jay's testimony because Christie's statement conflicts with Jay's statement about the color of the clothes, whether he changed clothes when he came and left, the time he returned that night with Jen. It's all over the place. Nothing lines up. But really more importantly than all of this, which was the true purpose of this show today, was to show the type of investigation these detectives were actually doing. It's indicated in the transcripts. McGillivray refers to the conversations they had before they started recording the interview. So once again, we have an unrecorded pre-interview that is undocumented before this interview occurred. So what I was curious about was what did Christie say about that day when she didn't have Ritz and McGillivray standing in front of her, prompting her? This is what she said at trial. And on the day, a month later, when that day came up in conversation, did you remember that it was the 13th of January? I don't think I remember the specific date, no. Somebody told you that day, did they not? I think it was Detective McGillivray. Detective McGillivray, you did not have any independent recollection of your own that the day that this person came with Jay occurred actually on the 13th. No, I don't think so. So again, what we're always trying to do here is to figure out the difference between what the witnesses actually remembered and actually thought compared to what they said or were documented to say when the police were interviewing them. And as you can see, there's quite a difference in Christie's testimony when she's at trial under oath without Ritz and McGillivray there to prompt her. So the next big bombshell this week by the guilters on Reddit was the Nisha call. This week, a Redditor posted Nisha's police interview notes. Their claim is that in the interview notes, it clearly indicates that Nisha was remembering that phone call where Jay and Anon were on the phone with her, specifically on January 13th. And this is why. Let me read to you from the notes. Now remember, this is not a transcript. These are the notes that the detectives were taking during the interview. This is not what Nisha actually said word for word. It's just their notes. They say... Remember when Adnan got a cell phone? Think it was mid-January when he got it. He figured it would be easier to call me on cell phone. Think it was around the time when he first got cell phone. He handed phone to Jay to talk to me. Thought Jay was white. Jay didn't seem friendly. Defendant just got into Jay's store. They were just talking. Defendant said hi, what's up? I said hi to Jay. And then there's an indent and two asterisks. And it says, day or two after he got the cell phone. That section was supposedly the big bombshell. Now, I'll be honest with you, I don't know exactly what that means. It's not written along with all the other notes right in line as they were writing down things that she said. That line is indented, they put two stars next to it, 
I read it as the way that I write my interview notes when I'm handwriting them, where if there's something that I picked up from what they said that was my interpretation, I always make a little star and then write out whatever it was. And that's just to indicate to me for when I actually type out my report that this is not something they said, that's just something that I took out of what they said. I don't know if that's the case here. I ran it by one of the state police detectives that were in my office the other day, and he said he's not sure either. Everybody has their own way of writing things. Different departments have different types of shorthand. He couldn't be sure. He said his assumption would be that that's probably something the detective inferred from something that she had said, but we don't know for sure. She goes on to say, Think Anon went in the store to say hi when Anon was visiting Jay. It was maybe a minute. Jay did not ask any questions. Short conversation with Anon. Think it was in the afternoon or maybe later on. Four or five. Get home around 2.20, 2.25. Get out of school at 2.10. Anon did not say I'll talk to you this evening or anything. Think he called the next day from cell. So, um, Alice and many of the other listeners, to answer your question, that was the big Nisha call bombshell. And the way that it's being spun on Reddit is that this clearly indicates that she remembered this day was on January 13th, that it wasn't late in the evening, it could have been the afternoon, maybe she misremembered saying afternoon or later on, four or five, and that once again, the undisclosed team are a bunch of lying, deceptive bastards, is basically what's going on on Reddit right now. But the fact is, these interview notes don't tell us anything at all. Again, they're notes, they're not transcripts. These are the notes that these detectives were taking when interviewing Nisha. This was their take on what she said. And even at that, even if everything they put down here is exactly what was said, she still says late afternoon, 4 or 5, she still says that Anand was going to visit Jay at his store. Remember that the Nisha call does not line up with Jay's own testimony, that he said the call came in after he left Jen's house, which was at 3.40, and that it was after he called Patrick, which was at 3.59. There's no way that it could have happened until after 4 o'clock, yet the Nisha call occurred at 3.32. There's a million reasons why the Nisha call does not make any sense for Adnan to have made that call. And you can go back through some of my episodes and undisclosed episodes, read transcripts, do anything you want. There is a million reasons why the Nisha call was not that 3.32 call. But again, continuing with the theme of the show today, these are the detective's notes where they have this double asterisk where they say, day or two after he got the cell phone. But once again, I would like to hear Nisha, in her own words, describe the one time that she ever talked to Jay and Adnan on the phone at the same time. Here's Nisha from trial. Um, it's a little hard to recall, but I remember him telling me that Jay invited him, invited him over to um, a video store that he worked at, and he basically, well, Adnan walked in with his cell phone, and then he said like, he told me to speak with Jay, and I was like, okay, because Jay wanted to say hi. So I said hi to Jay, and that's all I can really recall. Uh, what time of day did that occur? I would think towards the evening, but I can't be exactly sure. So this must be another one of those things that these guilters on Reddit choose to ignore. I guess to them, a double asterisk indented line on the notes that a detective wrote that says, day or two after he got the cell phone, overrides everything else that Jay said, everything else that Nisha said, all of the call log history. For example, in those notes, supposedly Nisha told the police that Adnan said he would call her the next day. He did not call her that evening. He didn't call her to the next day. But if you look at Adnan's phone records, there was that 332 call. And then he did call Nisha again at 9.01 p.m. and again at 9.56 p.m. that night. These are all things we're supposed to ignore because that one line is the big bombshell. 
Nice work, guys. Now, the next thing that I want to address is this lividity issue claim. And I want to put out a forewarning. If you're offended by me being extremely pissed and hearing foul language, I would recommend you shut this episode off right now. Because things are about to get ugly. Because I am absolutely furious about what this jackass ex-trial attorney or whatever he calls himself on Reddit has done. This worthless, lying piece of shit put a post on Reddit claiming that he has obtained copies of the burial photos and photos of the disinterment of Hay's body. His Reddit username is X-T-R-I-A-L-A-T-T-Y. He claims to be a lawyer. However, I believe he's most likely some jackass who lives in his mother's basement because for a trial attorney, he sure does have a lot of time to post on Reddit. So he claims he's obtained copies of these burial photos, and he's done a couple of things with them. First and foremost, he claims that he's analyzed these photos, and he made computer-generated images of the position of Hay's body that, in his professional opinion, prove that the lividity evidence is consistent with a 7 o'clock burial. Furthermore, he has made completely unwarranted attacks against Susan Simpson, Rabia Chowdhury, and Colin Miller, and it is absolutely disgusting. This man is a disgusting, lying pig. One of two things has happened here. Either he's completely lying and he has never seen the burial photos and has made all of this up based on things he's seen written. And to be honest with you, I hope that's what's actually happened because the second option is a thousand times worse. And it's what I think actually happened. The second option is that he has somehow managed to obtain these burial photos and has taken it upon himself to mount a campaign to smear the credibility of the people that are working their asses off to try to solve this case and try to find justice for both Hay and Adnan, and for everybody else that's been involved in this case, whose lives have been ruined by these asshole cops and prosecutor. He has completely, 100% misrepresented the evidence. It just so happens that I do have copies of these burial photos. I got copies of them so that I could pass them along to Jim Clemente, the FBI profiler who will be interviewing here in a couple of weeks, because he needed them in order to determine an actual profile. There was no way he could do it without seeing the actual burial site. I've never mentioned that I had them because the only reason they were in my possession was so that I could send them to Jim. Now, that being said, I forwarded Extra Latte's depiction of the burial scene to Jim Clemente. So when he comes on this show, if you don't want to believe me, you can hear Jim's take on the comparison of the actual burial photos to the computer animation that Extra Latte put together. But for now, I'm going to describe to you the position of Hay's body, and I deeply apologize for the graphic nature of this, but at this point, these assholes, and I include in that Extra Latte, Seamus Duncan, J.J. Oonch, or whatever his name is, and at this point, I'll throw Ann B. into that lot too, and I'll explain why in a minute. They need to be exposed for the deception that they are creating. An ex-trial attorney, or Extra Latte, or whatever the hell his name is, in his computer-generated images of Hay's body, he shows her laying on her right side with her right hip on the ground and her left hip pointed up. He shows her left arm bent behind her back, and he shows her right arm laying beside the right side of her body, like with her hand down by her buttocks region, and her upper torso completely twisted so her chest and her face are laying flat against the ground. And this is how he explains the lividity patterns. This is an absolute lie and misrepresentation of the position of Hay's body when she was found and disinterred. The most notable change was the position of her right arm. 
I'm going to describe a position to you to try to give you a better picture in your mind of how Hay's body was situated. So if you're not driving and you're in an open space where you can do this, while you're listening to this, lay on the ground on your right hip. So your left hip is pointed up in the air. Your right leg is straight. Your left leg is bent at the hip in the knee. So your knee towards your chest at about a 45 degree angle. So your left foot is resting about on your right calf. Now the way that her upper body was situated, take your left arm and bend it behind your back. So at about the waist, bend your left arm behind your back. Now here's the huge difference between what this asshole has put on Reddit and reality. Take your right arm, put it out in front of you so your right shoulder is on the ground. Your right elbow is also on the ground and extend your hand upward so your right hand is about 12 inches away from your face. So left arm behind you, right arm in front of you, bend at a 90 degree angle so your hand is in front of your face. That is the way that Hay's body was positioned in the grave. He's made claims that there's more pictures than what Rabia and Susan and the undisclosed team have obtained. There were more pictures that weren't shown to Dr. Lavati that the pictures they had were mid-disinterment, and that's why they were confused. There's, there's this whole list of bullshit as to why he knows better than what they know. But here's the truth of the matter. In the grave, before disinterment began, before anything was touched, before a leaf was moved, there are pictures where Hay's right hand is sticking out of the ground in front of her face. There was a rock placed on her hand to try to hold it down. And in the photos, before anything is touched, her right hand is sticking up there. And even with the rock, you can see her fingers sticking out on the other side of the rock. To try to represent this as though her right arm was behind her back, under her body, and she was twisted, is an absolute, purposeful lie. It is a lie that was either created after seeing the photos and purposely lying about them, or the entire thing was made up, and this guy has never actually seen the photos. And the reasoning behind why he would do this, other than an attempt to completely trash the undisclosed team, is they've torn apart the state's case and proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that Adnan Syed is innocent of this crime. The only other reason that I can think of besides doing that in your own personal fucked up ego is that you're such a sick, morbid bastards that you're trying to bait them into posting these photos. Which I hope to God will never happen. And I have lost any shred of respect I ever had for Ann Brocklehurst after reading her response on Reddit that says this, I've never been particularly interested in the lividity issue and would have been quite happy just to take ex-trial attorney's assessment without question. The photos happen to be included in another document I received. As a result, I am able to confirm. So again, these assholes are either distributing these photos around to where they ended up in Anne's lap, who is lying through her fucking teeth confirming that this depiction is accurate, or she's just lying through her teeth about ever having seen them. And I find it amazing that Anne has the nerve to attack me or Undisclosed or anybody else for not having sources that she thinks are qualified enough or verified enough to be spoken on the air. But she has no problem talking about her secret sources that she can't disclose and just taking ex-trial attorney or whatever his Reddit username is at his word without seeing photos. I am absolutely disgusted by everything these people are doing. And anything you have ever read from any single one of those people that I mentioned Remember this moment, because this is what they're doing. They don't give a shit about finding the truth. They don't care about justice. The only thing they care about is being right. And they decided a long time ago that Adnan was guilty. And damn it, they will do anything in their power to prove that they're right. 
Every single one of you disgust me. Thank you to Johnny Rose of Slightly Subversive Music for creating all the music for the show. Thank you to Tate Krupa for creating our logo. Thank you to Jill from Pod Transcriptions for generating all of our transcripts. Thank you to Sean T. at Sean T. Fitness for funding the program. And thank you to all of you for listening, contributing, and being a part of this movement. And a special thank you to all of you again for contributing to the GoFundMe Fund to help launch us into the next chapter of the Truth and Justice Podcast. And again, if you're interested in contributing and you'd like to do so, go to GoFundMe.com slash truthandjustice or go to SerialDynasty.com and click the GoFundMe link. Remember, next week I'm interviewing Jim Trainum, and if you have questions for Jim, please email them to me at theories at SerialDynasty.com. And as always, you're always more than welcome to email me any of your thoughts or theories to the same email address. You can catch me on Twitter at SerialDynasty. And for Facebook users, just go to the Serial Dynasty Facebook page. Thank you again for taking the time to listen today. I'm signing off, and until next week, this has been the Serial Dynasty. Serial Dynasty.